Psalm 66. We're going to look at Psalm 66 today. And as I was, uh, as I was thinking about what to preach on, I thought, you know, we, we preach through books here. And I thought, well, how can I preach through a book of the Bible in, in one sermon? Uh, and I thought that might be a little long. So I chose uh, Psalms just because it's, they're nice, easy passages. And, you know, at the end of the year, we like to focus on the good and, and focus on the good to come hopefully in the next year. And what better to focus on than on worshiping our God and how we can uh, look back at what he's done for us and look forward to what he's going to do for us in the new year. So that's what we want to do today. Let's read together Psalm 66. It says, Shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name and make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. All the earth will worship you and you will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name, Selah. Come and see the works of God, who is awesome in his deeds towards the son of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There let us rejoice in him. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves, Selah. Bless our God, O peoples, and sound his praise abroad, who keeps us in his life and does not allow our feet to slip. For you have tried us, O God, you have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. You made men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay you my vows, which my lips uttered, and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. I shall offer to you burnt offerings of fat beasts with the smoke of rams, and I shall make an offering of bulls with male goats. Selah, come in here, all who fear God. And I will tell of what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear, but certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his loving kindness from me. Lord, as we look at these words today, may these be your words, not mine. May your Holy Spirit speak to each one of us today. In Christ's name, amen. So Psalm 66 is here. It's not David writing this psalm. We really don't know who it is, but it is the, whoever the psalmist is, is, is basically looking at God and looking at reasons to give worship to God. And he does it by looking at three different realms of where that worship takes place. And uh, as we look at how worship is developed in this passage, what we're going to see is, is, is ways that we can increase for us personally and for us corporately as a church as a body of Christ how we can give how we can put ourselves in that in that place of worship in that in that place where we on a daily basis not just when we want to come to church not just when we uh maybe listening to praise and worship but when we can personally wake up and live our lives in that spirit of worship and that's what we're going to look at today the the first place he starts off with is the widest realm of where worship takes place he says here, he starts off in verse 1, and he goes in through verse uh, 7, and he says, Shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Now, we, uh, when we're thinking about where worship starts at, worship didn't start when, when, when I came into this building and started to sing. Um, worship didn't start when, whenever a choir got together and started to sing, or when a church was formed. Worship started when God created the heaven and the earth. And the Bible says that even if we don't, uh, even even when we are not able to um, um, give worship, that if we're not, we don't give worship, that even the rocks will cry out and worship Him. Um, the uh, and this is this is where He starts it off at. Instead of starting it with the human beings, He starts it with with God's creation, and focuses on how creation worships God. And He He uses a couple of words here. He uses the word "sing" here. And it's interesting that this word sing is not necessarily speaking of the human voice. So maybe if, if for those who can play an instrument, which is not me, um, people like Don who can play an instrument and who can play an instrument. Those are the people when when they play that instrument, it's it's giving worship to God. This word can be used as either uh, it, it can be used for either instrumental uh, uh, singing or it can be used as voices singing or when instruments accompany voices. So. Um, worship encompasses a whole lot of different things and how it works. Um, the other word we see here is that he says, shout joyfully to God, all the earth, sing the glory of his name. Now, we, 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 some, we know this word glory, but as I was looking into it, I was like, wow, that encompasses a whole lot more. When I think of glory, you think of, 
you know, somebody who reigns on high, a king, and they deserve the glory, the honor because of their, their rank or their station in life or something like that, right? But this word glory here, um, the way it's used, it literally has a meaning of the essence of a person. It's not just their title, their rank. It's who they are as a person. We don't give God glory. We don't give worship and praise to God um, simply because he's a king. We give it to him because of who he is. And that starts, who he is, starts with what he did. And what he did starts with creation. And when we look around us and when we see the things that he's done for us, and when we look at all that he has done, and remember at the end of each day of creation, yes, ultimately sin has marred his his perfect creation. But at the end of every single day, what happened? God looked at it and said it was good. And that is the essence of who God is. It also speaks of reputation. And in this passage, you're going to see as, as, as the psalmist looks back on what God has done, that's his reputation. What has God done for these people? He's brought them through, through the Red Sea. He's brought them through rivers. He's tested them. He's made them better. And all of that goes into the reputation that God has. And that's part of his glory. That's what it really means when we give glory to God. We're simply praising him for who he is, and for what he does on a daily basis in each of our lives. In, uh, in um, Luke chapter 19, verse 37 through 40, this is where um, Jesus actually tells his disciples that even if human beings are silent, that the rocks will cry out. This is when he's coming into the city, and, and it's, the, it's what we call Palm Sunday, and they lay out the palms before him. And he says, as soon as he was approaching... Near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of his disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. God doesn't need us to worship him. He wants us to, but he doesn't need us because creation itself worships God. He goes on in verse 3 and he says, Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Now, I I tend to use that word awesome a lot because, well, you know, I was raised in the 90s and late 80s and that's just what we do. Um, Things like cool and awesome, those are just words that you use. Well, but, but really, if you think about it, we say awesome about some things that maybe aren't quite as awesome as what really that word is supposed to show. Um... When, you think, when I think of what it's talking about here with awesome, I think of things that I've seen while I've been hiking. I love to hike. I, most of you know I like to run, but if I can't run and I don't, I don't get to do as much of it as I like, I like to hike or backpack. And no matter where you go in this world, wherever you find yourself, whether it's on a trail on the, on the Appalachian Trail on the East Coast, going up through the, uh, through the Blue Ridge Mountains and up through... Uh, all of those, uh, all the, all the, all the areas on there with the huge trees and the forest and the rain and all that—that's the beauty that God has created. Whether you come over here on the West Coast and now you're on the Pacific Coast Trail and and even parts of the desert areas, uh, or um, go up on Palomar Mountain. One day, uh, one of the best when I realized I really loved living in San Diego was I think it was my first year here, and they got snow on Palomar. So Beth and I drove up to Palomar just because, well, we hadn't seen snow in a while. We are from South Carolina, and it doesn't snow there much either. So we went to Palomar and got to see snow in the first part of the day. But then at the end of the day, we ended up at the beach over in Carlsbad looking at, a sun, at, a, at, the, at, the, at the sun go down over the water at the beach. Now, that is just amazing. You can't do that anywhere. But what it demonstrates is how awesome God's creation is. When you look around there, I don't know how anybody could come away from looking at those scenes and come away with anything but a view that all of earth is a special creation of God. There's something that we can't create, we can't make. The best thing that we can make, we can build a tall building, we can make it the most beautiful it can possibly be. You can make a gorgeous sports car and put all the technology into it and have it have the most beautiful design ever, but really... Does it compare with a mountain that has trees on it, with the sun going down over the ocean, with the sun rising in the desert, with the stars that are all over the sky when you look up when there's no city lights around? 
Can anything we make compare to that? Absolutely not. The best we can make is but a pale reflection of what God has done in his creation. And I think that's why the psalmist starts right here by saying that, you know, if we don't find any other reason to give worship to God, then walk outside and look around. Because if we just open our eyes to God's creation, you will be moved to worship. That's what it's all about. And, and, and there's so many psalms that talk about that. The song that we sang right before the a message this morning that Don led us in, you know, the moon and the stars declare your, your glory. That's so true, and there's so many places that we see that every day. He goes on and he says, because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. Now, what is he talking about here? You know, the Bible says in, in the New Testament, in Philippians chapter 2, in verses 10 and 11, that some point in time, in the end times, however that looks and however that happens, it says Philippians 2, 10 and 11, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, and of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I think that's the same thing that the psalmist is saying here, that because of how powerful you are, that starts with creation and has demonstrated all people, and whether or not someone wants to acknowledge that or not, at some point there will come a time where every single person, living or dead, will stand before God. And even if they haven't recognized Him as Lord and Savior, they will recognize Him as the Creator God. And they will be forced to worship Him as He deserves to be worshipped. How much better for us who are believers, who do know who this God is, who do put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, to be able to look at that same creation, to look at that power displayed in the universe, and to be able to give Him our praise and worship while we live on earth as a human being and look at the daily things that he gives us every single day. And so he 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 goes on from there and he says all the earth all the earth will worship you and sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name, Selah, come and see the works of God who is awesome in his deeds towards the son of man. Now that word Selah there is obviously it's nobody knows exactly what it is, but it's probably some sort of musical term that come, comes all over in the Psalms and we're going to see it several times here. Um, he, it, verse five there says, come and see the works of God who is awesome in his deeds towards the son of man. This is the first thing that I want to focus on here. He says to come and see the works of God who is awesome in his deeds towards the son of man. As we think about going forward into 2014 and we think about coming and worshiping together as a congregation, as we think about worshiping as an individual and, 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 and expressing our love for Christ and, and, our, and our love and our appreciation for what he's done for us, how do we build that spirit of worship? And I think what he's saying here is that one of the ways we do it is simply by looking and seeing what God has done. He says, come and see the works of God who is awesome in his deeds towards the sons of men. You see, worship builds from recognizing what God has done and is doing. And if you say, well, I don't see anything that God is doing, then that means your eyes aren't very open because God is at work in our lives every single day and in many, many, many different ways. And the problem is not what God is doing. The problem is maybe our focus is on the wrong thing. If my focus is on myself and on my problems and my life situations that I'm not happy about, and on you know all these different things that can take our attention away, whether it's job-related, finances, whether it's people in our lives, relationships, all these different things can keep us from focusing on what God is doing. And one of the great things as we talked, as 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 we heard about this morning about reading through the Bible in a, in, in the year is if if you do something like that, it forces you to at least a few minutes a day sit there and say, "What is God saying to me?" through his word and to spend that little bit of time focusing on what God has done for you or what God is saying to you, what God is doing. And that will help you to develop that spirit of worship. <laughs> then he goes on and he gives some specific examples. Now, remember, he's speaking to Jewish, a Jewish audience. He's speaking to the people of Israel um, in the context. This could be uh, the king actually being the psalmist here. 
Um, but basically, he's reminding the people what God has done for them. He's saying, hey, look at what God has done, and this will drive you to worship. So what has he done? He says in verse 6, he turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There, let us rejoice in him. Now, where do we see this happening at? The, uh, the, we see it in the Red Sea. Um, if you think back to Exodus chapter 14, what had just happened? Here, the people of Israel, thousands and thousands of, of them, millions, have left Egypt. God has delivered them from the Pharaoh. Pharaoh has been through plague after plague after plague saying, no, you can't go. And then finally, after the Passover happens and all the firstborn children in, in, in Egypt are put to death and only the, the, the firstborn of Israel remain, it, Pharaoh finally lets them go. They get out of Egypt. They come all the way up to the Red Sea. And I've, I've only seen it on a map, but it's huge. You, you're not, you're not going to be walking through. And I, I know there's some people who think that it was very low tide or whatever. And they walk, but the Bible says they walk through on dry land. So there, there was, it's, it's wet. It's a river. It's, it's, a, it's a lake. It's a sea. And so they couldn't cross there. And they're sitting there. And of course, the people of Israel, like they normally do, they get all angry about it. And, oh, God, you took me out of here. Why are you leaving me? Uh, you took me away just to sit here and get killed by the Egyptians. But what happened? God demonstrated his power at that point. And he parted the Red Sea. They walked across on dry land. God destroyed the Egyptian army that day, and it never rose again. So that was the first time. But then most, of, and, and I have a tendency to only think about that time as well, but there was actually another time that God did the exact same thing for the people of Israel. And you would think in that situation, they would have been able to think back and go, oh yeah, God did it for us back at the Red Sea, then obviously he's going to do it now. But that's not the way it works, and that's not even the usual the way it works for us. We tend to be people of the present and we forget what God's done in the past. But what happened was, so now they're under Joshua, the ruler. And they've, they've come through what, you know, if you remember back to Moses, he led them all the way to the promised land. And then what happened? They sent the 10, the, the 10 spies in, or um, the 12 spies in. And as I learned in Sunday school, 10 were bad and two were good. And two of them said that God was going to uh, give them the land, and ten said no, and so because of their lack of faith, um, they wandered in the wilderness 40 years, everybody over 20 years old died, and, and now they have a new group of people, and they're getting ready to go into the promised land, and they're right there, but they have a problem, because before you can get into that area, you've got to cross the Jordan River, and the Jordan River is pretty big again. Um, I haven't seen it, but those who got to go to Israel saw it, and I've seen the pictures of it, and you've got to get across that river somehow, and they didn't have... They didn't have bridging machines like we used in Iraq and, and all these cool equipment. They didn't have CBs that could come up and build big bridges in a matter of hours. So what did they do? They prayed. And once again, God came in, parted the waters, and they walked right through over to the promised land and began their conquest of the promised land that God gave them. In both of these circumstances, the psalmist is telling the people of Israel, hey, look back at what God did for you. If you don't have any other reason to give praise... Look back at these moments when God did the specific thing for you and your people in your life. And as I, as I was thinking about what to focus on at the end of the year, what could we as believers do anything better at the end of a year than to look back on that year and try to find specific examples in our lives of where God has intervened? where we know that God has been there for us. Maybe it was physically. Maybe we saw God restore us physically. Maybe we've seen God, maybe not, we haven't seen total healing, but we know that, that God has intervened and helped us and sustained us during this time. Maybe it was financial. Maybe it was a relationship that was restored. Maybe it was simply that, that, that God has allowed you to, to overcome a habit, overcome a sin, um, giving you victory in your life that you never had before. But we're never going to be able to be more thankful for that if we don't take the time to see it in our life. And, bef- you know, we always think about, oh, we've got to do um, uh, uh, New Year's resolutions, which I don't know why I never keep them, so why bother? But, you know, if you're going to, you know, before we can really think about that, why not look back and take stock of what happened in the last year and say, you know, before I can make a resolution about the next year, why don't I see where God has worked this year and seen what's happened in my life and where he's led 
and, and, and just how God has lined things up. Um, and, and the reason I say over a year is because sometimes you don't see the way God is working one day at a time. I, that's the way we have to live our life. But do you know that when you find out you're losing your job, when you find out that you've, you've, you've got a, a sickness that is not going to be cured easily or ever, um, the day you find that out, it's really hard to see God's hand in it. But maybe six months down the road, a year down the road, 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, all of a sudden you start looking back and going, wow, when I got that news, that was really bad. But God did this in my life, and he used this person in my life, and he put me in this circumstance, and all of a sudden all those pieces start to look like a whole different picture. And something that looked really bad from our perspective at that point in time all of a sudden, God creates a beautiful picture out of it. And that puzzle that you can't really see what's going on in it because all the pieces look so different, when God puts all those pieces together over the course of days and weeks and months, all of a sudden, it's a beautiful portrait that God is painting. And if we don't take the time to see what God is doing, then we'll miss an opportunity to give Him praise and to thank Him for all those things that He's done in our life. And so he, he, he talks to them about what constantly looking for what God is doing. Um, and then he goes on and he says in, 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 uh, in verse 6, he says, He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There let us rejoice in him. So he's saying, look back on those circumstances. But uh, it's interesting that he points out what happened right after they crossed the river. Because in both situations, whether it was the Red Sea or the Jordan River, what happened immediately is they got on the other side. They took time to give God thanks. And too many times we can get so busy in our daily lives that one of the reasons we fail to worship God on a daily basis that, that is that maybe we miss what he's done for us that day. Maybe we miss the little blessings. We can see the big picture when we look back over a year, but it's also a daily thing that right when something good happens, right when God brings something together Taking that time to say, wow, Lord, I can't believe you just did that. Thank you. Give him that worship at the moment that it happens. So it's, it's looking back on the past, but it's also having your eyes open every single day for what God is going to do that day in your life so that you can see his power demonstrated through you and in you. And as we go into 2014... I think both of these apply because the one is look back on 2013 and see what happened. But the other part is as you enter into January 1st, 2014, and you start going through your days, be on the lookout for what God is going to do that day. Be on the lookout for what God is going to do that week so, and, be, and be ready to give him praise for it because there's so many different things that he's doing and we can miss them if we're not looking for them because our focus is on, well, I've got to... I've got to get here and I've got to do this and I've got this coming up and we're, we're, and I tend to be that way myself. I'm always looking towards the future. I want to see six months out. I want to see a year out. Gunnar has been going back and forth with me all week on, uh, on, on, on the preaching schedule for next, for next year and, and, and where we're going to go with it. And, and you have to do that. But sometimes when you focus all, everything you have on trying to look a year down the road, you miss what happens that day. Um, so just be sure as you plan for the, net, for the next year, you're also looking every day at what God is doing around you. And then he continues in verse 7 as he, he finishes up this passage on looking at the big picture and how creation worships God. He says, he rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. He rules by his might forever. You know, when you look back on world history, kingdoms have risen and kingdoms have gone. And when the Bible was written, uh, when the Old Testament was written, you, you had kingdoms like Babylon. You had uh, the Greeks at the end of the Old Testament. Um, when the New Testament comes along, you have the Romans in charge. Um, and guess what? Now Rome is a little city in Italy. It's not that huge of a deal. Um, you, you have... All these different countries and all these different nations that have risen and fallen. The British Empire ruled like all the known world, most of the known world at one time. And yet now, I mean, would, Great Britain's a power, but not like they used to be. Um, you know, and we're here now and someday if the Lord tarries, 
You know, the United States may not be the, the number one nation on earth. So nations rise and fall all along in history, but one thing will always stay constant. God's rule is going to be forever. And that's why when you look around at creation, you're not looking at something man has made. You're looking at something that God started back in the Garden of Eden and created an earth out of nothing and spoke it into existence. And when we're looking at that, we're looking at God's creation that will always be there. And until he comes back, the sun is going to rise. It's not going to blow up. We're not going to go away. The sun is going to rise. The rain is going to come. The earth is going to be here. Yes, there's going to be problems. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be all these other things that happen. But ultimately, God is in control and God is in charge. And we see that in his hand in creation. The second thing that we see, the second realm that he talks about here is that is the corporate realm. What what we would say is the church. Um, And we see that because all of a sudden he switches. He kind of switches voices here and he goes from talking about how, you know, this this general overall creation. He rules by his might forever. Then he goes into a we. He starts talking about we and us and our and we see here in verse 8, he says, Bless our God, O peoples, and sound his praise above. Because it's not enough to just see the worship of God in creation. Romans chapter 1, as you know, we keep going back to Romans, but it's because we just got out of there. But in Romans chapter 1, you know, it says that all, no, no, that all men are held accountable because they can see God in creation. They can, you know, God has revealed himself in creation. But ultimately, our response to him and, and how we worship him is done corporately as the body of Christ. Um, you know, I've been around a lot of people who uh, who say, well, you know, I, I'm from South Carolina. So I've had a lot of people tell me, oh, well, I worship God in my tree stand on Sunday morning. I worship God in my in my bass boat. OK, well, you can do that. I'm not taken away from that. You you can be out there and enjoy nature and. You know, I, I, when I see a deer come up with a tree stand when I used to hunt, yeah, that was a good feeling. But that is not how God intends all of our worship to take place. In fact, he intends us to express our worship through the body of Christ as a corporate, as a gathering together as the church. And in Hebrews 10.25, it says, in Hebrews 10.25, it says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God did not intend Christians just to be out there as individuals floating around, worshiping Him in His creation. Yes, it draws us to worship. But we are called to worship God as the body of Christ, to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And what we have here in Valley Center is a piece of the body of Christ. When we come together at Valley Center, it's as individual believers, but it is as a body. It is as the body of Christ who's gathering together at a set time to worship him. And all across the world, other believers, other pieces of the body of Christ are gathering to worship him at different times and different days and all of that. And we are a part of that. Um, I just got through reading uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And and uh, one, and he had an illustration. He said he was speaking at an RAF base, uh, a Royal Air Force base, and he had a uh, officer come up to him. Um, and this was after this. This is obviously after World War II. And the officer said that he had had an experience with God while he was out in the desert chasing Rommel around, and uh, that um, that nothing, no experience he had in church could ever meet up with that experience that he had in the desert, and therefore. Um, he told C.S. Lewis, he said, I, I'm never, I'm, I'm not, I just can't go to church because none of my experiences with God can meet up with that. And, and C.S. Lewis told him, he said, well, that, he didn't try to discount his experience or anything, but he said, you know, that, that experience was great, but that one-time experience with God is not make up for the systematic experience of knowing God on a daily basis and experiencing God through his people and his body that comes from being a part of a church. And for better or for worse, we're called to experience God and to worship God as a body of Christ, not as an individual, um, but as a part of a larger body. Um, The corporate worship takes place because of reflecting on the work God has done in the past. So this builds on verses 5 and 6. He says, remember, he's talking to the people of Israel. He says, look, 
This is what happened in the past. God brought you through the Red Sea. He brought you through this. And, and now he's saying, when you come together, use those experiences to draw on that past and to better worship God. Um, and, and so that's what they're going to do here. He says, bless our God, O peoples, and sound his praises abroad. Um, now, it's interesting here that, uh, that he, he's calling for thankfulness. He says, bless God, give thanks to him, sound his praise. Give, and that's basically thankfulness and praising him. But what's interesting is now he's going to use the rest of this passage and talk about things that aren't so good. Because he, you would think at that point he's going to go, bless God, peoples, because, look, he, he brought you King David. He made you into a great nation. He gave you King Solomon, who had all the wisdom and all the wealth and all this. You would think that's where he's going to go with this and just say, look at all the wonderful things God's done for you. And instead, look what happens. He goes into verse 9 and he says, who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip, for you have tried us, O God. Hmm. You have refined us as silver is refined. Now, that, that's nice-sounding poetry there, but think about what refining takes. The illustration here is of, is of smelting metal. When you, if you want to get your gold more refined and, more, and, and as pure as you can get it, it doesn't come out looking like a gold ring, does it? It doesn't come out looking like this wedding band I have on. It comes out of rocks, and it's ore. And you, you can chip it out a little bit, but really you have to, in order to get it pure, you got to put it into some massive heat. And it's probably not going to be heat that's going to be hot enough to get on your stove. So they put it into a massive burner and a massive uh, thing and heat that iron ore up. And the more they heat that ore up, the, if there's gold in it, it'll the, the gold will separate out from the impurities. And, and if you keep doing it for gold or silver, or I'm guessing platinum, I don't really know. But it, the more you do that, what happens is you get purer and purer and purer metals. And that's what God is saying they're giving thanks for. Now, that... When you get hot and when you burn yourself, that's not a nice process, is it? I don't like that process. I don't like getting burned at all. But he's saying, be thankful for that burning process. Be thankful for that heating process. Be thankful for that smelting process. Because all these things, he says, for you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. If, if he's thinking of trying, that doesn't sound like a fun situation. And so he's saying to the people of Israel here, as a corporate body, as the people of Israel, it wasn't just that he brought you through the Red Sea. It wasn't just that he took you into the Jordan. He has brought you through a lot of hard times. But those hard times are what has made you into a strong people of God. And one of the things that we fail to miss is that the bad things that he brought us through, whether as an individual or as a church or anything that we go through that is difficult even then, we can look and see God in it. Because God is using that situation to refine us and make us into the person that he wants us to be. He did not save you and redeem you in order to just remain that piece of ore with a few gold specks in it. He saved you and he redeemed you so he can make you into a pure gold jewel for him. And that's the process that he's using in our life. He's using it in the life of our church He's using it in our individual lives to create for himself a body and a person that is pure and holy. And that's what we're called to be thankful for. He, said, he goes on in verse 11 and he goes, he says, you brought us into the net. You laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. You made men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. Because here's the key. It's that first phrase in that last one. Verse 9 starts with who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. And verse, 11 in, and verse 12 ends with yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. Through it all, all that middle stuff that they're going through. When he's talking about the fact that you made men right over our heads. We went through fire and water. Those don't sound like fun things. But through it all, they could trust in the fact <coughs> that God was not going to allow their feet to slip. And even if it felt like their feet were slipping, that meant that God had a hold of their hand the whole time and that it was all in his plan. And the more that they could trust in the more their, 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 the, the body of believers, the people of Israel could trust in that, the more they could see God work in their midst. And if we as a church go into next year 
looking at it and saying, whatever trials come into my personal life, whatever trials come for our church, that we can hold on to God and we can trust him because he's not going to allow anything to come against us. The Bible says that there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be, uh, to be tempted beyond that you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way to escape. And God is bigger than all of our problems. God has allowed these things to happen for our good and under his protection. Um, 1 Peter 1.7 talks more about this. He says, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, you know, as I was thinking about this passage, the one, uh, you know, up until recently, the church in China, um, they, they, they're probably the most recent example of, of a church as a body of Christ that has been under extreme persecution. And, and up until recent years, their, their, their pastors were not chosen and, and made um, whatever they, the ruling bishops or elder, however they view their, their setup over there. They were not chosen based on master's degrees, doctorate degrees, um, seminary education. They were chosen based on how long did this guy spend in prison for the cause of Christ. We don't have to face anything like that over here. But you know what happened in that church? Even under communist persecution where they were trying to stamp out everything that they could, the, they couldn't, they weren't, technically they weren't allowed to even share the gospel with their children. Uh, they could have a public church, but they couldn't share the gospel with their children. They had all these very restrictive rules, and yet what happened? The Church of China is one of the largest churches in the world with more true believers who actually want to serve God. And a couple of year, a few years back, they put out a book. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but it was written and it was endorsed by a lot of the church leaders in China after they they got freedom um, to publish it. And it's a plan for the Chinese Christians to actually take the gospel into all the Muslim countries that are in their area, because that's what their goal is. Is even while they were under persecution themselves, here they're given their freedom to worship God as they want. And, and what do they want to do instead? Let's go into a countries that absolutely hate us and want to kill us, and let's get the gospel to them. That's what God was doing there in the midst of that persecution. He was taking people who were willing to put their lives on the line to serve him, and he was creating a church for his glory and for, his, uh, for the spread of his gospel and his kingdom around the world. And so he goes on into here, and another in the Old Testament, it says in Isaiah 43, chapter, uh, verses 2 through 3, this same idea. It says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That is the greatest promise in the world. And if you can take that into 2014, it will help you to worship God even when maybe things that you have to face this next year are not going to be to your liking. Is the fact that no matter what you go through, that God is with you every step of the way. And the other, as, as we're thinking about the corporate body of Christ here, you know, Galatians 6.2 tells us that we are put here to help each other through these times. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That the church should be a place where when you are going through those bad times on an individual basis, that you can come through these doors and find a group of people who will support you and will help you to be able to find that spirit of worship, to be able to find that support, to be able to find that rest, even when life outside these doors may not be everything you want it to be or expect or hope it to be. And so that's, that's the corporate. That we worship God by joining others in praise. But then lastly, he brings it down on a personal level. Because ultimately, guess what? The church is made up of individuals. Which is also why maybe some people aren't totally happy in church. Because they aren't able to look past the individual differences. That each one of us walk through those doors with our own personalities, with our own problems, with our own who we are. And we have to be able to, to, to understand the fact that we all have our place in the body of Christ. And so he come, brings it down to a personal level and he moves from us and our and things like that into I. And so he starts in verse 13 
And he says, I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay my vows, you my vows, which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. Now, what does this personal practice of praise look like? He starts off here with sacrifice. Now, obviously, we don't go to a temple and we don't sacrifice animals because Jesus Christ paid that price once for all. He's the ultimate sacrifice. He he was the absolutely perfect sacrifice who came as a human and was the only one who could take away our sins by offering himself. But according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, and Gunnar brought this up last week as well, what does our sacrifice look like? It says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, <coughs> excuse me, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what, is, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you want to know what personal worship looks like? It's not coming to church and singing words. Personal worship is offering yourself daily to God as a sacrifice to Him. When you sing words on the screen, it may be worship, but it may not. It depends on what your, what's in your heart. It depends on what, what your heart is saying and what your head is saying, what your words are saying, and whether you come in here with truly offering yourself to God and saying, and saying that you want to be that living sacrifice, that yes, you're human, you live your life, you go through your day, you do your job to the best of your ability, you take care of your family, you love your family, But at the end of the day, you're not doing it through your own strength. You're doing it through God's strength. You're not doing it for your own glory. You're doing it for God's glory. That's what worship looks like. And so he says, as he comes and he gives these offerings to God, we do that spiritually by offering ourselves to God, the same as the psalmist was doing here when he physically did it by offering uh, these 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 rams and all of the others. Now the interesting thing here is this: he goes on and he says, um, he says, I shall offer to you burnt offerings of fat beasts with the smoke of rams. I shall make an offering of bulls with male goats. Selah. So we have here fat beasts. I don't know exactly what those are. They probably cow of some sort. Rams, bulls, and goats. That that's a lot of animals. Okay, and and. Um, that that's a lot of animals. There's no sacrifice in that in in the book of Leviticus that is that mandates this many animals. So there's a couple of different ways to look at it. I kind of feel like this is hyperbole. Um, that's the way a couple of commentators take it. I think it's basically that he has so much joy and worship in his heart that he's he's using poetic license. This is poetry. He's using poetic license here to say, hey. I want to worship you so much and I feel so much joy in the fact that I can come into your presence and worship you that I'm going to come in with this massive amount of offerings and give it to you. Because at this time, this would have cost a fortune to do. Um, the, the other part is, if he is the king of Israel at this time, it could be that he's offering maybe an extravagant amount for a specific occasion. But I really do feel like this is poetic license to say that his worship was characterized by joy. He didn't come in and just say, okay, God, I'm supposed to, you know, the Bible says I'm supposed to give you a goat today and and a pigeon if I don't have enough money. But I have enough money, so, okay, here's my goat, God. That, that's what you get today. No, that wasn't how he came in at all. He said, I know I'm supposed to offer a goat, but God, I, I just, you've done so much for me. I'm going to come in and I'm going to bring a whole herd. And I'm going to bring them from my farm and I'm going to drive them over and I'm going to bring the ones that I could sell at market and make the most money off of. And I'm going to give them all to you because that's how much I care. That's how much that you care about me. And that's how much I love you and I want to worship you and I want to praise you. And that's the way that our worship should be characterized. It's characterized by joy. And what drives that? It's by the fact that we're constantly looking to see what God is doing in our life. And the more that we see what God is doing, the more joyful we will be in our worship. The more joyful we'll be in our giving. The more joyful we'll be in our singing. Because we will we will be seeing what God is doing on a daily and a weekly and a monthly and a yearly basis. Psalm 84, 1 and 2 says, How lovely 
are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs and even yearns for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. You know, how much do we really yearn to worship God? That com- he, he compares it in Psalm 84 to, to longing and yearning. In other places, it's, 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 it's listed as a thirst. When you thirst for water, that's the only thing you want. If you've gone hours and hours and hours without drinking and you're in a desert, and even if you're out here and you're sweating and you're working, and all of a sudden you, you know, you're three or four hours into working on your yard and you realize, oh my goodness, I need a drink of water. Oh, I'm about to die. Do we feel that way about worship? Do we feel that way about giving God our praise? Because that's really what he's speaking about here. And the last, he says it's characterized by personal sacrifice, by joy, and then lastly, it's characterized by boasting, but not about ourselves. It's boasting about God's answers to prayer. In verse 16, he says, Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell of what he has done for my soul. I cried to him of my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear, but certainly God has heard. He's given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his loving kindness from him, from me. Now, this, is, this, this last portion is set up as, as, I believe it's called a chiasm. I could be completely wrong if you know grammar. But it's basically a poetic form that is pointing towards the center. And, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it has two different sides to it. And so he starts off with this phrase in verse 16 where he promises to his listeners that he's going to tell them about God's work in his life. He's going to boast about what God has done. And then he comes down in verse 20, and he actually does it. He says, blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his loving kindness from me. He heard my prayer. That's his testimony. So he starts with, I'm going to tell you about it. Then in verse 20, he does. In, in uh, verse 17, he then tells about his prayer, and he basically tells, okay, this is what I did. I asked God for this. I, uh, he says, I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. And then in verse 19 is the other side of that. He says, this is where this is what I did, but then God heard me. And so I know that he heard me, and then that led up into verse 20 where he says, and now I'm going to tell you about it. But in the middle of that is, is one verse, verse 18, and, and, it, and sometimes it kind of looks out of place, but it's really not because... If the first part is, this is what I'm going to do, and this is how I did it, I asked God for this, and then the second part is, and then God answered my prayer, and now I'm going to tell you about it. In the middle of that is his recognition of the fact that the only way that God was going to hear that prayer, the only way that God was going to be able to answer that prayer for him, he's making the point that he could not have this regard for sin in his life. And, and that, that, that word there that says, um, if I regard wickedness in my heart, that word there literally means that if I, if I gloat, if I savor, it's not just, okay, I have, we're all sinners. Yes, we're saved. Yes, God is working on us. And, and, and yes, we are being made more and more holy every day if the, if the process of sanctification is working in our life. But the sin will still be there, I believe, till the day we die. It's just hopefully we kill it more and more. But what he's talking about here is the person that savors it and gloats over it. That cannot characterize a Christian. A person who basically lives for sin. The person who says, I'm I'm not sorry for my sin. I love my sin. I want more of my sin. And, and, th- and that's what characterizes their life. And he's saying, if that is the kind of life I have, then God's not going to hear me and he's not going to answer this prayer. And, 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 and so he's ending this psalm on not, not totally a negative note, but he's pointing out one other purpose of worship here in that the purpose of worship is that we, be, we might become more and more like Christ. And as we become more and more like Christ, and as our worship is directed more towards him, then guess what happens to sin? Sin becomes less and less and less as he makes us to look more and more like himself in holiness. 1 Thessalonians um, 5, 16 through 23 says this, Rejoice always. This is, this is actually a passage on worship, and it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will, the God, God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. That word sanctify means to make holy, to clean your life out from sin. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what's going to happen? The more that we come together as a church to worship God and as individuals worship him with their lives, the sin problems start to go away. Yes, we're going to fall. But when we fall, it's going to hurt us. It's going to prick our conscience. We're going to know that God is working on us and that, and that and it's not something that we want to continue in and that he's going to change us more and more to be himself. And so the last purpose of worship is that we become more like Jesus Christ. Um, William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, during the last years of World War II, uh, he, he had a focus in his theology and in his life on on the incarnation of Christ and, and on how Christ made a difference in the world, he defined worship as this. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open up the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. And the more you worship God... You're going to find the more that you want to serve him with your life. And hopefully as we go into next year and we focus on worshiping him, that you'll find at the end of 2014, when you look back on your life, that you've had more of a desire not just to worship him, but more of a desire to live for him. And that comes out in service to him every single day, wherever you find yourself at work or at home or even here at church. There's no more fitting way to end our year by looking back on what God has done than to look back to the ultimate hope that he's given each of us through his son, Jesus Christ, and what he did for us on the cross. And we do that by participating in communion as the body of Christ. And if you're here today and you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, we invite anyone to come and share in our communion with us. Um, the After I pray, the musicians are going to come and and we're just going to take a few moments to examine ourselves, as the Bible says. And, uh, and when you feel prepared and you know Jesus Christ, you don't have to be a member here. We would just invite you to come and partake in the bread and the cup. Um, and remember what Jesus Christ himself instituted when he told, told his disciples that they, he would, they would do this in remembrance of him. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you so much for your love for us, for dying for us for allowing us to have the uh, privilege of serving you every day, to have the privilege of lifting up our hearts and our voices to worship you um, and be able to see you at work in our life every single day. You didn't stop working back in the Old Testament or the New Testament, but you work every day. May we be looking for that in 2014. We give you the praise and the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.